On this vote, the yeas are 230, the nays are 197, present is one. Article one is adopted. The, quest the question is on adoption of Article two. Article two, section four of the US Constitution states that the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It's not a particularly long section of the Constitution, and it's also not that complicated on paper, but it's probably the single most serious political procedure that America has. It outlines, in what was supposed to be plain language, the actions that would warrant a president's removal from office. Article 1 of the Constitution also states that the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments, and when sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of members present. Impeachments are not something to be taken lightly because they're essentially reversing the results of the last election and the will of the American voters. That's why in 245 years, well, at least at the time of this recording, impeachment has only officially been brought against three presidents. It's a big deal. But in the past year, impeachment has been brought back into national dialogue. The yeas are 229, the nays are 198, present is one, Article 2 is adopted. On December 18th, 2019, Donald J. Trump, the 45th President of the United States, was impeached on one count of abuse of power and one count of the obstruction of Congress. The charges came from the discovery of a phone call that he had made to the President of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, on July 25th, 2019. In that call, Trump pressured Zelensky to investigate then-former Vice President and presidential candidate Joe Biden and his son Hunter in exchange for almost $400 million in foreign aid. He was trying to discredit Biden and tamper with the upcoming Democratic primary and U.S. election. It didn't work. But when the word got out, it was enough for Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to pull that biggest of triggers. The actions of the Trump presidency revealed dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. Trump was the third president to be impeached in U.S. history, and the first president to be impeached in more than 20 years. But even though impeachments are rightfully rare in American politics, and they're something we should never ever get used to, we've definitely seen them before. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Welcome to Precedented Times, the podcast about America's past, America's present, and how it all seems to be repeating itself. I'm Dylan Mims. In this episode, we're writing a biography on the life of impeachment, and their history all starts with one man, one president.
George Washington. Do you remember the Articles of Confederation from your history class? It's okay if you don't. It was only in use for about a decade. It was essentially a baby constitution. The first draft at turning 13 scrubby colonies into a real, functioning country. Except, it wasn't doing that. In fact, it really wasn't working at all. See, what had kept the colonies together before and during the Revolutionary War was the Revolutionary War. Everything was all good when they were fighting a common enemy. But when the war was over and America had won, there wasn't much need for unity like there had been before. And the Articles of Confederation didn't really help promote any unity either. It makes sense. When the Articles were drafted, the goal was to stay as far away from a monarchy and centralized power as possible. The problem was, though, that each state was sort of acting like its own country, and the federal government created under the Articles didn't really have the power to do anything. Sort of famously, when the federal Congress met to figure out how America was going to pay off all of its war debt, the whole thing was a giant free-for-all. Here's how historian Jeffrey A. Engel put it. Rhode Island rejected every effort to return the federal debt. As the smallest state, it was wholly uninterested in sharing the load with its larger brethren. Georgia habitually and politely voted yes, then refused to pay. Others simply declined to voice an opinion. Yeah, turns out we the people didn't last all that long. By 1787, James Madison wrote that, quote, Our situation is becoming every day more critical. And so the founders reassembled, this time in Philadelphia, just 10 years after writing the articles, to scrap them and come up with something else, something better, hopefully. This time, the founders realized they couldn't have a completely decentralized state-run government, at least not entirely. They needed some sort of strong federal government if they wanted America to survive past the decade, let alone get any work done. So they created three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Each branch could perpetually guarantee their own power and relevance. Now, this was admittedly a dangerous and not super popular move. Remember, these guys are still fresh off of a monarchy, and the last thing they really wanted was to create a new one. But if the branches of government were all in opposition to each other, there might be a way that they could retain centralized power and avoid tyranny. And that's exactly what they did. The courts, the Congress, and the presidency could all step on each other's toes just enough to stop any one of them from getting too powerful. The most powerful of these groups, though, was still the presidency, especially because all of its power was invested in just one man. They thought, or they knew, that power was a dangerous thing. Sam Adams, who would go on to be the fourth governor of Massachusetts, wrote, Ambition and the lust for power above law predominate passions in the breasts of most men. And it was supposed, wrote Thomas Paine, that the executive part of the government was the only dangerous part. Despite this, the founders weren't really worried about this situation in the immediate. They already knew who they wanted to be the first president under the new constitution the celebrated war hero, George Washington. Now, Washington himself wasn't all that interested in the idea. He'd spent a long time away fighting for the war and had recently resigned from the military. He was enjoying his time off. But the founders insisted that Washington, who was immensely popular, come to the convention and help write the Constitution, and eventually serve as president. James Monroe wrote, the signature of his name to whatever act shall be the result of its deliberation will secure its passage through the Union. No matter what they did, no matter what they came up with, they wanted Washington on board. But the founders wanted Washington for more than just his popularity. He was also viewed as an incredibly virtuous and honorable man in that time. Now, I want to be clear. 
they weren't calling Washington a perfect person. He wasn't. He lost a number of battles during the war, and he was short-tempered and could often become extremely angry, and he cared obsessively about his own reputation and standing, almost to a fault. And that's before any modern-day critique of Washington, like the fact that he literally owned other human beings. Even then, nobody thought Washington was some sort of saint. But when he won the Revolutionary War, at the height of his achievement and popularity, he was willing to step aside. He never, ever put himself above the good of the country. Presidents would always be flawed, but the framers of the Constitution were sure that a man like Washington, who was far from perfect but ultimately selfless, would be the best kind of person to lead the country. The question then became, what would happen if a leader was elected who wasn't like Washington? Not in policy or political ideology, in terms of commitment to the country and the common good. At the Constitutional Convention, Benjamin Franklin said that the first man at the helm will be a good one, but nobody knows what sort might come afterwards. In organizing a government from the ashes of monarchy, this was the Founders' greatest concern. Impeachment wasn't entirely a new idea to the Founders. Impeachments had been going on for centuries in Britain, where the king's officers, though not the king himself, could be removed from power by the Parliament. The difference was, though, that without a divine right to rule, presidents could be just as susceptible to impeachment and removal from office as any other officer under the U.S. Constitution. But for what? The scholar Hugh Williams said that presidents should only be impeached for malpractice and neglect of duty. But malpractice, or maladministration, as some founders put it, wasn't enough to remove a president. If Congress could get rid of a president just because they didn't like what he was doing, Americans would set down a path where presidents would be impeached all the time just because Congress didn't like them. Elections were supposed to stop presidents who were just bad at their jobs. Impeachable actions needed to be more serious than that. So, after some debate, the convention came back with a new clause, saying that, quote, He shall be removed from office on impeachment from the House of Representatives and conviction by the Senate of treason or bribery. But a delegate from Virginia, George Mason, wasn't satisfied with this either. Why, he asked, is the provision restrained to just treason and bribery? And he had a point. There were plenty of other crimes a president might commit that weren't covered by just those two things. Crimes that the founders probably couldn't even think of. Someone brought up maladministration again, but that got shut down pretty quickly for the same reasons as before. So Mason proposed the addition of other high crimes and misdemeanors to the impeachment clause. Now, Mason probably thought he was pretty smart for coming up with the catch-all term, high crimes and misdemeanors, and the rest of the convention agreed along with him. I don't think they knew what a mind-bending concept they'd just written into our founding document, or that those four words would keep constitutional scholars scratching their heads for centuries on end. Now, this wasn't just a cop-out by the founders or them trying to cut corners. They knew how powerful their words would be. If they had their way and America stuck around, their words would be interpreted and scrutinized for centuries. So they must have all been really clear, at least among themselves, about what high crimes and misdemeanors was supposed to mean. Now, the term high crime doesn't actually mean murder or just like a really bad crime. It just means that whatever the action was, it was committed against the country or was against the public good. It also didn't have to actually be a crime. Plenty of things aren't crimes, but if they were done by the president, they might be considered crimes against the country, like lying, especially about something important. Jeffrey Engel has another great example of this. He says that a jaywalking president need not worry that his offense might somehow violate the public's trust. Jaywalking is not impeachable. 
purposefully hindering an investigation into his jaywalking, however, might be. <clears throat> Mr. Nixon, are you listening? And what about you, Mr. Clinton? Spoiler alert. They're not. All of this was framed around George Washington and all the things that they thought Washington would never do, like putting himself before duty or service to the nation. In a lot of ways, impeachment in America looks the way it does because of Washington. He was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination, but his integrity was, well, unimpeachable. In the absence of that integrity, everyone at the convention knew would be dangerous for the nation. After the Constitutional Convention adopted Mason's term, high crimes and misdemeanors, they didn't talk about impeachment again. Not at the conference, not during the Washington administration, not for another 81 years. But that changed almost the minute that Andrew Johnson, the former congressman, senator, and military governor, stepped into the presidency. Johnson had been vice president for just 42 days when he took his new oath of office. Lincoln, who was running for re-election and from Illinois, wanted to choose a running mate he thought could appeal to more than just the Republican Party's northern base. He found that candidate in Johnson, a Democrat. Remember, this is the middle of the Civil War. America is literally torn in two, and all Lincoln wants to do is preserve the Union. He may not have agreed with Johnson politically, but he would do anything to keep the country together. And it kind of worked. Together, the two win a landslide victory against the Democratic ticket. 212 electoral votes to just 21. Of course, a bunch of states didn't vote because they considered themselves a whole different country, but that's besides the point. Then, under Lincoln's leadership, the Civil War ends, the Confederate states surrender, and all seems to be on the road to getting well again. But then... Lincoln gets assassinated in Ford's theater by John Wilkes Booth, a Confederate sympathizer angry about the war. And the nation, the broken nation, was handed over to Johnson. Now, Republicans still controlled both parts of Congress, the House and Senate, and at first they had a lot of confidence in the new president. Johnson seemed open to unification after the war and everything that came along with it, including protected rights for black Americans and former slaves. But their confidence, and Johnson's facade, didn't last very long. Johnson, who was born and raised in Tennessee, was just as much a white supremacist as anyone on the other side of the war. And he'd opposed the war not because he wanted to free slaves or unify the country, but because he thought it made it harder to advance the power of white men like himself. Now that the war was over, he was committed to advancing that power. He let Confederate states rejoin the Union with almost no conditions. He basically just said, welcome back. Johnson argued that since secession wasn't actually a thing under the Constitution, southern states couldn't have actually done it, that they were one country this whole time, and that basically nothing in the past four years had happened. He also didn't stop Confederate generals from taking positions in their own states and passing black codes, new laws that restricted the rights of black Americans, not that they had many rights in the first place. This put him on really bad terms with the Republican Congress, really, really quickly. And the feeling was mutual. Johnson hated the idea of federally guaranteed equality because he said it infringed on, say it with me, states' rights. One day, in August 1866, from inside the White House, Johnson shouted that, We have seen a Congress in a minority assumed to exercise power which, if allowed to be consummated, would result in despotism and monarchy itself. Yeah, Congress was having none of this. 
The next year, they passed a series of new laws to restrain Johnson's power and keep him from acting unilaterally. They also passed the Reconstruction Act, which they hoped would speed up ratification of the 14th Amendment and help black Americans secure their political freedom. It also gave military generals the power to enforce the Reconstruction Act and required Senate approval for any orders given by the president. Finally, they passed one more law, the Tenure of Office Act, which also required Senate approval if Johnson wanted to fire any cabinet officials. Johnson, of course, vetoed almost all these measures, but Congress just overrode those vetoes. There were even talks this early about impeaching Johnson, but those got shot down pretty quickly. But then, in response to these new laws, Johnson went to his attorney general and told him to undo what Congress had just done. And the attorney general did it. So Congress passed another Reconstruction Act, putting all those powers back again. But Johnson just ignored them. He kept replacing Republicans in the South with more and more Confederate sympathizers. Congress was getting really mad at this point. So impeachment talks started again. The motion even made it through the House Judiciary Committee this time. But still, not enough congressmen thought he'd actually done something specifically impeachable. Remember the whole maladministration debate. The election was coming up, and a lot of representatives thought it would be better just to wait for the next election. That's an argument you might have heard before. So the vote failed on the floor of the House. Johnson didn't heed any of these warning signs. He just kept going. In 1868, he fired and replaced Secretary of War Edward Stanton. But, under the Tenure of Office Act that Congress had passed earlier, he didn't actually have the power to do that, not without the Senate's approval. Stanton and his replacement, Lorenzo Thomas, basically had a standoff over who was actually in charge of the military. They even tried to physically block each other out of the Secretary's office. Stanton ended up issuing a warrant for Thomas's arrest, and law enforcement took Thomas into custody the next morning. At long last, Republicans, who were desperate to get rid of Johnson, finally had their justification. The proceedings were so fast that Congress didn't even approve articles of impeachment until afterwards. They'd impeached him before they'd even written up what exactly they were impeaching him for. Eventually, the House passed 11, 11 articles of impeachment against Johnson. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether or not the House rushed too fast in impeaching Johnson, and if Johnson's actions truly warranted that reaction. But nevertheless, they did it. They impeached him. And so, the president went to trial. It began on March 5th, 1868, just a few months before the next election. Like the House, Republicans controlled the Senate, so Johnson's odds didn't look good from the get-go. Senator Edmund Ross wrote about the tensions of the capital city and what it felt like at that time. Quote, Its streets and its places of gathering had swarmed for many weeks with representatives of every state of the Union demanding in a practically united voice the deposition of the president. The trial took place over 10 weeks, and Johnson spent most of that time just pacing around the residence, waiting for daily results. On the Senate floor, impeachment managers from the House were not mincing words. In a particularly dramatic speech, Congressman Boutwell spoke the following. Travelers and astronomers inform us that in the southern heavens near the Southern Cross, there's a vast space which the uneducated call the hole in the sky where the Isle of Man, with the aid of the powers of the telescope, has been unable to discover nebulous or asteroid or comet or planet or star or sun, in that dreary, cold, dark region of space, the great author of celestial mechanism has left the chaos which was in the beginning. 
Thatwell told the Senate jury that the most just fate for Johnson would be for him to be sent to that place, quote, to exist in a solitude as eternal as the absence of life emblematic of, if not really, the outer darkness of which the Savior of mankind spoke in warning those who are enemies to themselves and their race and of God. Sheesh. That was a mouthful, but trust me, even for the 1800s, this was big talk. Now, Johnson's defenders argued that the Tenure of Office Act that Johnson broke was simply unconstitutional, and that Johnson wasn't in the wrong for disobeying an unconstitutional imperative. And they had a point. But outside the Senate floor, Johnson's lawyers were doing a whole lot more than just talking. They offered money, favors, pardons, anything they could give to senators to stop them from voting to convict him. Historian John Meacham said, It was a remarkable melange of high politics and low dealings. But ultimately, shady deals or not, Johnson's lawyers were better, and they made better arguments about the constitutionality of the president's actions than the House managers could. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that Johnson's lawyers didn't keep mentioning weird black holes created by God that they wanted to throw the president into, but the jury's still out on that part. As for the Senate jury, seven Republican senators, along with all of the Democrats, voted not to convict Johnson. He escaped removal from office by just one vote. Well, thank God, Mr. President, one of his lawyers told him, you are free again. Johnson would end up losing his party's nomination for re-election, which was definitely something he was angry about. So just months after his acquittal, he left office anyway, and he would never return to the White House. His impeachment vote remains the narrowest margin of victory for any president thus far. You can say that the House impeachers went too far, and you have a fair point. They would probably say that they were just trying to protect the American government from executive overreach. But they failed. And so executive overreach would be back. Richard Milhouse Nixon was a lot of things. Congressman, senator, vice president, president. A common man who hated Ivy League elites. A staunch law and order conservative. But equally as important, in my opinion, he was a huge klutz. Dick Nixon would fumble and drop everything, from pens to candy bars. It was a sort of famous trope around the White House. Nixon just couldn't physically handle anything. So, in 1971, when the president decided that he wanted secret recording devices to be installed in the Oval Office, something that the past two presidents had done, his chief of staff, Bob Halderman, knew that manual recording systems with all its buttons and switches just wouldn't work out for his clumsy boss. Haldeman made the tapes voice-activated, so that they would record everything, everything that was said in the Oval Office. Now, if you know anything about Nixon, you'll understand just what a colossal mistake this installation was. It would come back to haunt men like Haldeman, John Dean, the White House counsel, and Nixon himself for the rest of his truncated presidency. But White House tapes weren't the only attempt Nixon made to streamline his administration. He employed thousands of staff in unprecedented numbers, to essentially deal with all the problems that could be solved without the direct involvement of the president. The president's time, Nixon thought, should be reserved just for the most important decisions. But this also had the effect of insulating the president from a lot of human contact. Besides Haldeman, he was sort of a remote guy. And maybe if he'd had more people around him, more people to give him feedback, he wouldn't have made such dangerous and selfish decisions as president. Because Nixon's streamlined administration didn't end with a bunch of new staff hires. 
He also instructed federal agencies and departments to target his political opponents. Nixon kept what he called an enemies list. Yeah, an enemies list. And he told the IRS to investigate and harass all the people on that list. If not to actually find dirt on them, then to at least embarrass them publicly. Then there were what was called the plumbers, the covert ops group that did, or told others to do, Nixon's domestic dirty work, like break-ins and unlawful spying. Nixon's actions and directions drifted from executive overreach to abuses of power to just straight-up crimes. In one infamous recording from the Oval Office, Nixon told Halderman and Dean that he completely expected federal agencies like the IRS to work to his political advantage. And Halderman and Dean were just sort of fine with it. This is how the Nixon White House ran in the normal months, but especially as the president's re-election grew closer. As November 1972 approached, the country seemed starkly divided, as it always seems to be. The United States was still fighting in Vietnam, and Democratic nominee and South Dakota Senator George McGovern and his base of the ultra-liberal saw their chance to push America to the left. In response, Nixon turned to his old tricks to gain the upper hand. It's worth mentioning that, given the disastrous convention that the Democrats had had four years earlier in 1968, and that their convention this time in 1972 hadn't gone all that better, plus the fact that their policies weren't super popular, Nixon definitely had the upper hand already. Anyways, members of Nixon's Committee to Re-elect the President, or CREEP, broke into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. in May of 1972. The plumbers stole top-secret documents from the campaign and wiretapped the Democrats' telephones. Wiretapping and secret microphones were basically Nixon's bread and butter at this point. This was supposed to give Nixon the upper hand, that espionage edge in the election fight. Except, they found out, the phone bugs didn't work properly. So, on June 17th, more than a month later, five burglars had to go back to the Watergate Hotel with new microphones. This time, though, Nixon's boys weren't so lucky. A security guard called the police when he noticed that multiple locks in the hotel had been taped over, and police arrived just in time to catch the five red-handed. When news of the break-in spread, there was immediate suspicion about whether or not the White House had been in on the burglary. Two Washington Post reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, were especially skeptical. They did some digging, and found that one of the five men who was arrested was head of security for Creep. Nixon quickly held a press conference to deny that he or the White House had been involved in the break-in in any way. The conference worked. Polls from the time showed that Nixon still had extreme popularity with the public, and he beat George McGovern that November in one of the biggest landslides in U.S. election history, 530 electoral votes to a mere 17. Nixon won every state except Massachusetts and Washington, D.C. It was a huge win, and after being resoundingly re-elected as president, Nixon might have thought that everything was in the clear. Later that year, a grand jury would indict the five men who broke into the Watergate, but there was no mention of a link between the burglary and the White House, so he thought everything was okay. All the plumbers pled guilty, and they were sentenced to prison time. But they weren't done being a thorn in Nixon's side. They demanded money for their silence. First a little bit, and then a lot, and then even more. Their demands kept growing, up to even a million dollars, and the paper trail just kept getting longer and longer. On March 21st, 1973, John Dean went into the Oval Office to tell Nixon that the cover-up of the Watergate scandal was becoming, quote, a cancer on the presidency. The president didn't care. There's a pattern forming here. Presidents rarely care. Instead, 
He asked his secretary how they might come up with the money. Dean was absolutely stunned. But he would only hold that office for a little longer than a month after that conversation before the axe fell on him too. By May of that same year, both federal prosecutors and the U.S. Senate were investigating the Watergate scandal, which was becoming every bit the cancer on the presidency that Dean had promised and Nixon had ignored it would be. And all the president's men who he fired to protect himself turned right around to the Senate Watergate Committee to tell the senators what they knew. John Dean exposed the concrete connection between the break-in and the White House, and Alexander Butterfield, a White House secretary, revealed the existence of the Nixon tapes. That last bit was an A-bomb for Nixon. The revelation of his secret recording system that had recorded everything he and his inner circle had said since February of 1971 was disastrous for the president. And if there's one thing that Watergate Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox, along with the Senate and the U.S. Attorney's Office, really, really wanted, it was those tapes. But Nixon, who knew how dangerous those tapes would be to his presidency, was not having it. He waited for months to fire Cox, and then, finally, he found his moment. It was a Saturday, October 20th, 1973. Nixon went to his Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, and told him to dismiss the prosecutor investigating Watergate. But Richardson refused to do it. In fact, he resigned, effective immediately. So Nixon went to the Deputy Attorney General, William Ruckelshaus. But Ruckelshaus also refused to do it and resigned, effective immediately. Finally, finally, the third guy in line, Solicitor General Robert Bork, agreed to carry out the firing. And so Cox kicked the career bucket with the rest of them. Then Nixon ordered the FBI to shutter all their offices and shut down every federal investigation into himself three high-ranking officials in the Department of Justice, gone, in one Saturday night massacre. Now, when this story broke, about what Nixon had done in the headlines the next morning, the House of Representatives had finally had enough. The House Speaker and Majority Leader had been sort of non-committal about impeachment over Watergate before now, despite the fact that Democrats controlled both houses of Congress and they all hated Nixon. No president had been impeached in more than 100 years by that time, and they were wary of the Johnson impeachment, which by this point was pretty much seen as an overpartisan mistake on the part of liberal Republicans. But after the Saturday Night Massacre, there was just no stopping the impeachment train. So they put the House Judiciary Committee and its new chairman, Peter Redino, in charge of finding out what exactly had gone on and if it was impeachable. Chairman Redino knew any impeachment articles needed to be bipartisan, otherwise the entire process would look discredited. He was committed to bringing together the parties in his judiciary. He wanted to impeach Nixon, but he wanted to do it the right way. He hired the famed lawyer John Doerr, and together they publicly requested everything they could from the Nixon White House, including the tapes. Nixon, again, wasn't having it. His White House released a slow trickle of information, bit by bit, in the hopes that he would never have to release anything too damning. Inside the White House, the president was described as incommunicado by one of his aides. But Nixon still had the Republicans on his side. They largely supported him in not giving Redino, Doerr, or the House Democrats any useful information. They were interpreting high crimes and misdemeanors as actual crimes and misdemeanors. And since what Nixon had done in the Saturday Night Massacre wasn't illegal, they argued that it simply wasn't impeachable. Democrats, unsurprisingly, were taking a much broader view of impeachment and they said that Nixon's cover-up of Watergate compromised the integrity of his office and his relationship to the American people. Now, here's what's interesting about all this to me. Remember the jaywalking president from earlier? The one who doesn't have to worry about getting impeached for jaywalking, but who might be impeached for trying to cover it up? 
That's basically what's happening here. It's not a one-to-one -one comparison because obviously Watergate alone as a burglary was bad enough, but it's the cover-up where Nixon, clumsy as all heck, really trips over his own feet. He went through such lengths to keep everything under wraps, and that's what ended up undoing him. Oops. Spoiler alert. Anyway, the lawyer and chairman keep pestering the White House, and they didn't let up. Meanwhile, more of Nixon's cronies are getting indicted for their complicity in Watergate. But Nixon wasn't letting up either. He was still holding tight to all of those tapes that he knew would spell the end of his presidency. The House gave the Judiciary Committee the power to issue subpoenas and force the White House to comply with their information requests. Now, Nixon didn't give them the tapes. He would never give them the tapes. But he would resignedly give them transcripts. Of course, he also edited those transcripts himself, so Congress didn't see anything that they really wanted to see. The subpoenas were still a huge blow to Nixon. So, losing the legal battle, he turned his sights to the PR. He thought that if he could turn the tide of the American public against impeachment, he could stop it before it really began. If he could make the whole thing seem rushed and partisan and vindictive, he might have a chance of holding on to his presidency. So, he staged another press conference. Good evening. I have asked for this time tonight in order to announce my answer to the House Judiciary Committee's subpoena for additional Watergate tapes. He wanted to show how cooperative he was being with Dorr, Rodino, and the Judiciary Committee. On the table next to him, there were two giant stacks of binders, and they were supposed to contain transcripts. In these folders that you see over here on my left, are more than 1,200 pages of transcripts of private conversations I participated in between September 15, 1972 and April 27 of 1973. But because of Nixon's little editing activity, the transcripts weren't actually ready yet. The binders next to him were empty. And if that's not a perfect representation of the kind of cooperation that Nixon was offering, I really don't know what is. I know in my own heart that through the long, painful, and difficult process you will see the truth of that statement. As for myself, I intend to go forward. I shall do so in a spirit, perhaps best summed up a century ago by another president when he was being subjected to unmerciful attack. Abraham Lincoln said, I do the very best I know how, the very best I can, and I mean to keep doing so until the end. There's an old saying, when the law isn't on your side, you pound on the facts. When the facts aren't on your side, you pound on the law. And if neither the facts nor the law is on your side, you pound on the table. This was Nixon pounding on the table. And I could only imagine that he pounded even harder on the Resolute desk when Chairman Rodino said that Congress wasn't taking Nixon's transcript deal. They wanted the tapes, and nothing less than the tapes. In the meantime, though, they used their subpoena power to interview witnesses, all those men whom Nixon had fired and who knew exactly what had been said in the Oval Office. Their testimony was damning. So damning, it convinced a bipartisan group of committee members who called themselves the Unholy Alliance to get together in secret. In a private conference room in a back hall of the Capitol, they essentially ghost-wrote articles of impeachment against Nixon. They didn't want anyone to know what they were doing because they didn't want to face any partisan pressure but it seemed like Rodino was going to get his bipartisan impeachment after all. Everything in Congress seemed to be coming together, while everything in the White House seemed to be falling apart. Reports had leaked to the White House about the bipartisan impeachment effort, 
and Nixon knew that a team-up between Democrats and Republicans would do him in, quickly. Frantically, he called Alabama Governor George Wallace in hopes that he might be able to convince some congressmen from his state to back off. But Wallace wasn't game. Nixon was toxic, and he knew it. Well, Al, Nixon said to his new chief of staff when he got off the short call with Wallace, there goes the presidency. And the next day, things went from bad to worse for the Nixon White House. Well, things were already at the worst stage, in my opinion, so I guess it went from worse to more worse. Anyway, the point is that over the past few months, Nixon and the White House had been arguing against the subpoena that would have had him turn over all of his raw tapes to investigators. Nixon said that keeping those tapes secret was a matter of national security. But at 11.05 a.m. on July 24th, 1974, the Supreme Court unanimously disagreed. Nixon was dumbfounded, but there were no loopholes in the court's ruling. He had to turn over the tapes. He had dragged out compliance as long as he could, but eventually the tapes came out. The truth came out. The real Nixon, the crook Nixon, the liar Nixon was revealed. Rodino and the Judiciary Committee passed three articles of impeachment against Nixon with overwhelming bipartisan support. But the articles never made it to the House floor. When Republicans got around to listening to those tapes on August 7, 1974, Representative John Rhodes, Senator Hugh Scott, and Senator Barry Goldwater, all Republicans, traveled from Capitol Hill to the White House to tell their president what he already knew. He was done. So he staged one last press conference on August 8th. He read from a stack of papers in his hand, his gaze going back and forth, up and down, between the script and the camera. To fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. The first and second impeachment proceedings against American presidents were 106 years apart. The second and third impeachments were separated by just 24 years. William Jefferson Clinton was back in Arkansas teaching law and trying to run for Congress when the Nixon impeachment was underway. But his long-distance girlfriend from Yale Law School, Hillary Rodham, was a young lawyer working on that case for the House Judiciary Committee, as Rodino and Dorr worked to impeach Nixon. Then there was a series of events. Nixon resigned, Hillary moved to Arkansas, and Bill proposed. Thus, the Clintons. Bill Clinton didn't win that race to unseat incumbent Republican Congressman John Paul Hammerschmidt. It was 80 degrees or warmer most days in the summer of 1974. So Clinton should have known that the Watergate wave, which in the wake of Nixon had swept so many other Republican congressmen out to sea, wasn't headed towards Arkansas. He came up just 6,000 votes short in the election. It didn't stop him, though. Clinton was too ambitious for that. Just two years later, in 1976, he would run again this time for Attorney General of Arkansas. And he won. And when he ran for governor two years later, he won that too. 
Now, there was a brief glitch in 1980 where Clinton actually lost re-election as governor, but he was right back again in 1982, and he'd hold on to the governor's mansion for another 10 years afterward. And by his side, through it all, as the first lady of Arkansas, was Hillary Rodham. She was just as smart as her husband, if not smarter, and heavily involved in the politics and policy of her husband's job. She was outspoken and unafraid of her own intellect, and the voters hated her for it. A lot of people still think that Hillary's non-traditional wife role, including keeping her maiden name, is what ended up screwing Bill over with the voters in that election of 1980. So, when it came time for Bill to run again, Hillary remade herself into a more acceptable woman for the voters. She wore skirts and blouses, she took his last name, she was, and she would always be, that sort of dutiful, faithful spouse. Her husband, standing in the spotlight several feet ahead of her, rarely reciprocated. Even before his 1992 campaign for the White House, Clinton had been accused of having numerous extramarital affairs with various women, and during his first campaign, the famous singer and actress Jennifer Flowers revealed that she had had an intimate relationship with the governor. At this time, Clinton had finally eked himself out as the frontrunner in the Democratic primary before the Flowers allegation dropped. Now he might lose everything. So he went on 60 Minutes, just before the Super Bowl, although his interview only lasted 11 minutes. He wouldn't fully admit that he'd had an affair, but he did the best to smooth the whole thing over. You know, I have acknowledged wrongdoing. I have acknowledged causing pain in my marriage. I have said things to you tonight and to the American people from the beginning that no American politician ever has. And by his side, literally by his side, as always, was Hillary Clinton. We've gone further than anybody we know of, and that's all we're going to say. And people can ask us a hundred different ways and from a hundred different directions. And we're just going to leave the ultimate decision up to the American people. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him and I honor what he's been through and what we've been through together. And you know, if that's not enough for people, then heck, don't vote for him. But they did vote for him. Clinton won the Democratic nomination a few months later and would win the presidency that November, beating incumbent President George H.W. Bush 370 electoral votes to just 168. The Jennifer Flowers scandal hadn't completely undone him. But remember that pattern I mentioned? That presidents rarely care? That for such smart, powerful men, they never seem to learn their lesson? Yeah, Clinton didn't learn his lesson either. What's worse, there were serious allegations that some of Clinton's conduct went beyond what was consensual. In 1994, two years into his first term as president, Paula Jones, a civil servant for the AIDC, filed a civil suit against now President Clinton. She claimed that Bill had sexually harassed her in 1991, when he was still the governor of Arkansas, and she was seeking $750,000 in damages. Clinton had tried to argue that a sitting president couldn't face a civil suit like this, but the Supreme Court, like with Nixon, disagreed. Jones's lawyers were then permitted to not only subpoena the president, but to try to prove a pattern of misconduct. In 1998, they brought Clinton in for questioning, under oath. It was in this questioning that, while trying to prove that pattern of misconduct, one of the lawyers asked Clinton some very, very specific questions about a former White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. Oh, Clinton knew Lewinsky. Now, this is a family-friendly show, so I'm not going to tell you how the two met or what they did, but let's just say that in 1995, 
three years before the questioning, Clinton and Lewinsky had engaged in a secret sexual relationship. She was just 22 years old at the time, and he was 49. After the affair ended, Lewinsky was transferred out of the White House to a job in the Pentagon. Clinton categorically denied the accusations during the questioning, but he privately panicked at the questions. He had no idea how much the Jones lawyers truly knew. That night, he canceled plans with his chief of staff and called his personal secretary back into work to pressure her into lying about his relationship with Lewinsky. He asked questions like, You were there the entire time she was with me, right? I didn't want to have sex with her. She wanted to have sex with me, right? Eventually, through some testimony from Lewinsky's confidants, the Jones lawyers learned and could prove that Clinton was lying. Around this time, a prosecutor named Kenneth Starr, who was investigating the Clinton's financial dealings, expanded his investigation to include the Lewinsky affair. The Washington Post broke the story to the country on January 21, 1998. The historian Peter Baker writes that, Unlike previous Clinton scandals, this one riveted the country with its tales of illicit sex, secret tapes, and brazen lies. It was a tabloid-type story, except it involved the presence of the United States and possibly his attempt to obstruct justice, and so that made it national news. Clinton's strategy was the same as it had always been. Deny, deny, deny. I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time. But he did lie. And he told people to lie. And he had most definitely had sexual relations with that woman. After a long legal fight, Kenneth Starr finally deposed Lewinsky herself for information. Starr gave her immunity for any false statements she made in the past. And in exchange, she gave him a <clears throat> certain article of clothing that could scientifically prove that the relationship had in fact happened. Now, I'm condensing the timeline by a lot here. Because this episode is already really long, and this whole affair no pun intended, lasted eight months, January to August, before Clinton finally admitted to his relationship with the former intern. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. Clinton had tried to use the Nixon method to get out of facing accountability for his actions. But because Nixon had tried it first and failed, he was constrained by the legal precedence of Watergate. And so information flowed freely, straight from the White House to Kenneth Starr and the prosecutors. Less than a month after Clinton admitted to the affair, Starr's office turned over a 453-page report, the Kenneth Starr Report, to lawmakers at the U.S. Capitol. They also turned over 30 boxes of evidence. And then Congress turned everything straight over to the American people and the press, in the report, Starr charged Clinton with 11 impeachable offenses, including perjury for when he lied under oath about his affair with Lewinsky. But Democrats had already decided to fight Republicans on impeachment tooth and nail. When you take a look back at the two impeachments before Clinton, the most partisan impeachments, like Johnson, were the ones that failed. The bipartisan ones, like Nixon's, might just succeed. If they could make everything look one-sided, they might be able to shift the narrative around impeachment proceedings and make Republicans look partisan and overreactionary. So, Democrats made everything as partisan and divisive as possible. They called their strategy, win by losing.
but Republicans weren't backing down either. There was a huge push among the rank-and-file GOP to impeach Clinton for what they saw as immoral and indecent acts. They went in hard on Clinton for his adultery, but the politics didn't really play off in their favor. Republican Speaker Newt Gingrich was confident that by the midterm elections that same year, in the midst of the House's impeachment proceedings, his party would gain around 20 seats in the House. But they didn't. They lost seats, actually, five of them. Democrats now had a stronger minority in the House than they had before the impeachment started. That never happens, not in the sixth year of a normal presidency, let alone one where the president is literally being impeached. What made it an even bigger win for the Democrats was that Gingrich faced huge backlash from his caucus for the loss, and he stepped down as Speaker of the House. And for a minute, just like the other impeachments we've talked about, it looked for the Clinton White House like everything would be okay. But Republicans, down but not out, kept pressing on the impeachment. They staged hearings, where Kenneth Starr was called to testify about the president's perjury, and Congress had to again consider if Clinton's actions lived up to high crimes and misdemeanors outlined in the Constitution. Republicans argued that because Clinton had lied and compelled others to lie for him, he had tried to impede a federal investigation and obstructed justice. Democrats argued that Republicans were obsessed with a presidential sex scandal. Tensions grew so strained within the House that shouting matches regularly broke out in the hallways. It got so bad that Bob Livingston, Gingrich's successor for Speaker of the House, was starting to get cold feet. He told an aide that, We've got to stop this. This is crazy. We're about to impeach the President of the United States. He thought about censuring President Clinton instead, and not going all the way to impeachment. But the aide egged him on, saying that Clinton's affair warranted impeaching. It was an especially ironic argument, because Livingston would actually resign from Congress the very next day over his own affairs being made public. My colleagues, my friends, and most especially my wife and family, I have hurt you all deeply, and I beg your forgiveness. I was prepared to lead our narrow majority as Speaker, but I cannot do that job or be the kind of leader that I would like to be under current circumstances. What is it with powerful men in government and sex scandals? Seriously. But nevertheless, two articles of impeachment, abuse of power and perjury, passed the House, largely on party lines. Clinton became the second president to ever be impeached. And just like Johnson, he was headed to trial in the Senate. The last Senate trial had been for Johnson's impeachment 130 years before Clinton, but it still laid the groundwork for how an impeachment trial would run a prosecution made up of members of the House, and a defense team of lawyers for the president. A full Senate body, completely silent, would serve as jurors. They even kept the sides of the chamber that each legal team sat on the same, which was awkward for both counsel because they were on opposite sides of the aisle as their parties. It began in mid-January. There were 13 impeachment managers, who argued the case over three days. They lectured the Senate on Clinton's wrongdoings, on his perjury, on his attempts to get others to lie for him, and they made a good case. Even some senators on the Democratic side were impressed with the points they made. They also pointed out that some federal judges had been impeached and removed for perjury in the past, which made Clinton's removal from office seem less like an overreaction and more like something that had been done before. Clinton had former Senator Dale Bumpers from Arkansas representing him, among others. They took the sympathetic route. They didn't refute anything the managers had said. That game was over. They didn't even try to defend the president's actions. All they really argued was that nobody was perfect. Was it a great defense of the president? I don't know. It doesn't really seem like it to me, but I wasn't there. 
and clearly the people who were largely sided with Clinton. His approval ratings reached as high as 73% during his impeachment. By the time Clinton admitted to the scandal in August and well before the trial started, the public had already processed the Clinton affair, and they were over it. Despite the House's best efforts, they just didn't have the votes to convict. Clinton was acquitted on both articles. They didn't even get a majority vote. Just like the Johnson impeachment, many said that Republicans had gone too far in impeaching Clinton, and that his actions just weren't worth it. Clinton celebrated the acquittal, not really acting like a man who'd almost lost the best job he's ever had over a sex scandal, but he was the victor. Now I ask all Americans, and I hope all Americans, here in Washington and throughout our land, will rededicate ourselves to the work of serving our nation and building our future together. This can be, and this must be, a time of reconciliation and renewal for America. On this vote, the ayes are 232, the nays are 197. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. That wasn't the audio from the start of our show, but it was Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi again. It was audio from the House of Representatives impeaching Donald Trump for the second time. Incitement of insurrection, the article was called, and it came from Donald Trump's role in egging on a mob that stormed and took over the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. 2021, to overturn the results of the last election. I don't want to go too much into this now. You'll hear more about it in another episode in a few weeks. There are two takeaways from Trump's second impeachment that I do want to talk about, though. The first is that it's the first time a president has been impeached more than once, and just more than a year apart. This means that in all of American history, a president was impeached in 1868, 1974, 1998, 2019, and 2021. When you put them on a graph, and I did put them on a graph, they look almost exponential. Whether the impeachments are warranted or not, it should be concerning for all of us that the nuclear bomb of constitutional procedure has been used more and more frequently over the past half century. And just because it's a precedented time doesn't mean that it ought to be. Impeachments are becoming more and more present in our political environment, and so has the polarization, bitterness, and partisanship that comes with them. Here's the second thing I want to mention as our episode comes to a close. The yeas are 57, the nays are 43, uh, two-thirds of the senators present not having voted guilty, the Senate judges that the respondent, Donald John Trump, former president of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the article of impeachment. The presiding officer directs judgment to be entered in accordance with the judgment of the Senate as follows. Even with overwhelming evidence of egregious crimes, even with a majority of senators against him, President Trump was still acquitted by the U.S. Senate in his second trial, 57 votes to convict to 43 votes to acquit. 10 votes short of the needed two-thirds supermajority. It was his second impeachment acquittal.
he sent a mob to attack the capital, to attack the people inside the chamber. And when it was all said and done, the people in that chamber voted to look the other way. Why? I'd honestly like to say that I had this reason to give, but it comes from journalist Elizabeth Drew from Project Syndicate. But her reason makes complete sense. Out of all the things I said the founders thought about when they wrote impeachment into our constitution, I never mentioned political parties. And neither did they. Political parties didn't even exist when the framers wrote the constitution, even though they wouldn't be far behind and would overlap with many of the founders' lifetimes. But the framers never imagined that a country could be so overrun with political division and tribalism that a Congress would care more about voting along party lines than voting in the best interest of the country. They would never imagine a Congress that wouldn't even be able to do its most important job, defending the American people from their president if and when the time came to do so. But Congress, overrun with the same sort of partisanship and division, has never, ever been able to convict a president and do that job, even when the situation warrants it. Because the sad truth is, the Constitution has guardrails against runaway presidents, but not runaway parties. I'm Dylan Mims. Thank you for listening to Preston Times. If you like what you heard, and we hope that you do, please make sure to check us out everywhere you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next Wednesday. This episode of Preston Times draws primarily from the work of John Meacham of Vanderbilt University, Timothy Naftali of New York University, Peter Baker of the New York Times, Jeffrey A. Angle of Southern Methodist University, and their 2018 book, Impeachment in American History. Supplemental information and editorials were drawn from Impeachment's Partisan Doom by Elizabeth Drew of Project Syndicate and The Watergate Scandal by the editors of History.com. As always, we thank and credit their incredible research, without which this show would not be possible. Thanks again for listening, and until the next precedented time.